Welcome to The Pestle. Reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Prometheus. It sounded like a good idea, but now you kind of regret it. Let's start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Pupper's Beer, the lager that rests in your lap but doesn't laugh your face. Pop in for Pupper's. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we are filmmakers who like to uh, analyze films in the worst way possible, where we virtually get everything wrong. Like, I don't know. I mean, that could be true, actually, because we don't really, maybe to the chagrin of the casual listener, we don't really go and like do heavy research and figure out what is the filmmaker trying to do according to them? Um, what do the critics say? And what's the popular opinion? We don't really know any of that stuff. Instead, we're more interested in what is the movie presenting to us and what can we take away from just watching the movie because i think that's a much more honest look because someone might intend for a thing to to say a thing that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what it's saying and so i think if you strip something down especially when it comes to art and uh, move away from assigned intention and instead look at uh, you know the the pro- the product of it and its impact uh to me that's you know a much more interesting avenue to to look at when it comes to whatever assessing art and meaning and whatever yeah what do you think yeah i totally agree i mean i i think that there there are some some really wonderful aspects that critics uh bring to film i mean you know i think that they're a, a big motivator you know um and i think that it, it does matter eventually probably what what other people think of a film, right? But when you're first discovering a, a movie or a piece of art in general, having it be as untainted as possible and have your reaction being as untainted tainted as possible is is kind of the goal, right? And then and then after you have that initial feeling, then, you know, getting all of the other bits and pieces from from society, from critics and stuff and are are you know, they'll, they will affect you probably, but they won't affect you in a way that will take away from your first viewing experience, which is what the filmmaker intended in the first place. And as with any kind of art, you know, the filmmaker might be trying to say one thing, but end up to you saying something totally different than to me. And so hearing all of the the chatter from everyone and, and everything might, uh, might change that. Yeah. So we try to work as much in a vacuum as we can, uh, at least initially, you know, and I, I like that. Yeah. And I really love what you said about, you know, the, uh, the ability to just watch a thing before consuming any kind of other outside opinions, because yeah, it is nice to say, I know exactly how I feel about this thing because I did, you know, like you said, consume it in a vacuum. Um, and that's a really beautiful way to just approach something in an honest and, uh, unambiguous way is just to say, well, how do I feel about it instead of, creating these expectations going into something is can be kind of difficult depending on the medium, I guess, uh, maybe certain things and are, are worse the wear for it. Like I think, and, and in ways that you might anticipate, like going into, if someone just drops a new stand up comedy special and you go into it blind, I think that's going to be a better experience than if someone starts telling you the jokes beforehand. Right. And it's like, Oh, and he has this bit, you know, uh, about dragons and whatever. Uh, and you're just like, Oh, okay. And it, or there's this really, and we can leave it at this, I guess, but there's this great moment from Jerry Seinfeld where he talks about doing a, a stand up at, I don't know, as a charity or, or maybe just a, a regular show. And the way he gets introduced is this is the funniest man in America. You know, you're about to have the best time of your life. And he's like, I can't live up to that. Like you just, you set the bar way too high. And now, you know, how do, how do I live up to that? Um, yeah. And so I think there's something to letting something come to you organically instead of like false expectations or tainted. If someone says, oh, this is a terrible movie you might now see it as a terrible movie because now you're looking for why it's terrible instead of, you know, having that fresh experience. I don't know. Sorry. Yeah. Well, with that, we are covering A Quiet Place 2 today. So if you haven't seen the movie, it's out today, I believe. Uh, So if you haven't seen it, uh, please pause this episode, go watch it and, and watch part one as well because it's a direct continuation of that. And we're gonna spoil, you know, both films 
um, uh, in this episode. For jerseys, uh, we'll talk about a few things. We'll touch very lightly on cinematography and some of the ways they framed horror for a PG-13 movie. Uh, we'll also look at a lot of the story and writing, um, some of the differences between part one and two, things that worked really well in one um, and maybe not quite as well in the other. Uh, we'll also discuss why sequels are really hard. They're very hard to do, uh, especially, you know, if one is much better than the other um, and other such stuff and things and stuff. Uh, and a quick synopsis of the film. Following the events at home, the Abbott family now face the terrors of the outside world. Forced to venture into the unknown, they realize the creatures that hunt by sound are not the only threats lurking beyond the sand path. Written and directed by John Krasinski. Cinematography by Polly Morgan. Starring Emily Blunt as Evelyn Abbott. John Krasinski as Lee Abbott. Millicent Simmons as Reagan Abbott. Noah Jupe as Marcus Abbott. Killian Murphy as Emmett. And Jimon Hansu as Man on Island. Nailed it. Ronnie, what do we got? We got units headed out there now. EMS and fire. Number five. I think our pilot walker's falling. What is going on? It's okay, baby. It's okay. Mom. think you were the most excited person i know um about the sequel like this was appointment setting for us like we bought our tickets weeks in advance um and we're <laughs> dang near literally counting down the days we did everything except have a, a part two calendar <laughs> and, and marked off right. the days um and i'm so i'm, I'm just curious like how to hit you especially the day after like we're you know a good 12 hours after the fact and so i'm i'm curious you know mm -hmm. how's it sitting with you I, I mean, to be honest, I was underwhelmed. The beginning was really great. I love how they went, you know, they started pre the first part, pre the first movie uh, and led into the to that movie. Um, so I really like that. I always like seeing John Krasinski on the screen. But after that, after basically that the continuation of that scene, um, I it was just very slow moving, which is OK. You know, I'm not. The way that I'll phrase my experience with this would be, would be, it might be a great middle movie, right? It might be a really good, like, second part to a trilogy. But even then, I feel like everything that they did in the film, and I think we, we talked about this after as well, standing outside, I feel like everything they did in the film could have been done in the first half of the film and then introduced some kind of. Like, you know, we knew what the goal was pretty early on, not right at the beginning, but about a quarter of the way in, I think maybe a third of the way in, we, we realized, oh, okay, Reagan is going to try to go to this island and put the, the sound from her hearing device through the radio, right? And to help the world, right? To rid these, these creatures, to, to hurt these creatures. Okay, that sounds great, but we know it's so early that it just feels like, okay, they need to be able to do that and that not work, right? Because we knew it so early rather than not knowing what was going to, what the solution was going to be until the very end. Like thinking the solution is one thing and then that doesn't work and then they find the real solution right at the end that you don't expect. But we're expecting it the whole time and so, or not the whole time, but a lot of the time we're expecting it. When she, when she says, oh, I, I found... Yeah, there's a couple other holes too. So like she finds she's able to track the where the the tower is, I guess where the um the signal is coming from from the radio. We don't really know how. I mean, I guess she like she she's tracking stuff on a map when she's sitting on top of the silo. She's tracking the um the fires, you know, that that 
come out. So we see her tracking. There's a little bit of a preemptive kind of thing. Okay. She likes, she's like, you know, doing research, discovering stuff, trying to get knowledge of like, you know, for whatever purpose, but then to just have to also be able to track where a, a radio station is. I didn't really know how she could do that. I, I wasn't really informed that she is very knowledgeable about this. Maybe I needed, maybe, maybe I needed to watch the first one again right before this, but even did you watch it or no yeah. i didn't but is there it, it, that should not be a requirement to understanding what's happening in the story right like maybe it should be like okay just a little bit of a reminder mm. that she's really good with this kind of thing right even it you know if it was said in the first one or not it doesn't matter just give us a reminder that she's good at at technical stuff right yeah um because this is it's not like she's sitting on top of a silo and can see the the radio tower and so she's like marking it on the map she can't see that she can just see the fires and that's what she's marking on the map but now she's finding a radio tower anyway so that aside and we're just talking about you know plot points and and things right now mm. i liked the, i like that it was centered around her and she was the savior the dad portion i you know kind of like the continuation of her father i like that a lot because the first one was all about her relationship with him and so I like that they gave her that. I like that there is another father figure. But as I had mentioned to you, I just don't feel like he was built into enough, either enough of a father figure or enough of not a father figure in order to, to play the role that, you know, I don't think we, we were, he were trying to, he was trying to fill the role of uh, Lee mm-hmm. in this. He even says, I'm not Lee, you are. And that's a very powerful line in the film when they're on the island. Very powerful. But I didn't, I didn't have enough, quite enough either backstory or exposition with uh, Killian's character enough to really be invested in his survival and his journey with her, right? Like, so there was some weakness there, I think, too. And then the ending was, I mean, it was just, it just cut to black with her standing over, you know, the, the, the dead, uh, the dead creature. And it was just lacking. It just felt lacking, man. It, it like, okay. So the thing that they had planned to do for two thirds of the entire movie, maybe three fourths, they did. Okay. I mean, yeah, but now what, you know, uh, I did like the things I did like were I like how they they um, showed Evelyn and uh, Marcus and the baby at the same time that they showed Reagan trying to de- defeat the, the monster. Yeah. To basically save everybody. Right. I, you know, I felt like, you know, very beclamped when they were trapped in there in the the this the metal sphere and, and all, all that stuff. So I did like that. And I just love being in this world. I really, really do. Um, but also, I didn't feel like it was as quiet as the first movie. For, Interesting. You know, I, I'm going to go back and watch it again. But the first movie was just so jarring because it was just, I mean, most of it was nothing, um, at least no audio. And it was just painful, uh, yeah. you know, painfully quiet, maybe because it was the first one, but I kind of expected the same for the second one, but they're just being in, in Killian's bunker where they could talk more freely hmm. was like, okay, this feels safer. You know, even though we find out it technically isn't necessarily, it's, it still felt safer. We felt safe as a, as viewers. Right. And the point is for us not to feel safe, even when they might be. Uh, and so so yeah, I, I walked away. I mean, I enjoyed enjoyed every minute of it. I thought it was still a strong film, and uh, I'm gonna go see it again because I really want to. Because the the reviews are stellar, and everybody is saying that this is really good. But I just felt there was a magic to the first one that this one didn't have that it that it could have. It could have had it, you know. Yeah. Um. The the ba- also the baby the baby. F- Man, I love John Krasinski as a, as an actor. I love him as a as a director and as a filmmaker. I think he's really really good. But man, the baby felt like a like a weight, hmm. you know, not like a 
a beautiful, precious thing. I mean, there there were some really good moments, you know, of like Marcus holding him him and, you know, kissing the baby and trying to take care of him and and you know, oh my god, when when they're crying and he's locked in that he's locked in the shell, what do we call it? We'll call it the shell. Yeah. And they're he's locked in the shell and I thought that was a really good touch that they don't tell us why the the watch alarm goes off. You just they show us like you got to open the door because you can't breathe in there because it's airtight. They show us many times. That was really great exposition without saying anything. Mm-hmm. So then when it's a when it's a life or death situation, it really weighs on us. But there are a lot of lot, lot of things that just didn't quite hit for me in it. And those are just a few. But I think the more I watch it, I'm either going to see things that I didn't before or I'm going to in a good way or in a bad way. You know, yeah. Um, also, I felt like and I'll stop here. We saw a lot of the monsters. Hmm. Yeah, we saw a lot of the monsters. And part of the amazing thing about the first one was that we barely saw any of them until the end, really, right? And when we did see see them, we saw pieces of them, not like full on, you know, very much. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the opposite. I would prefer more monster because at a certain point, once you've already shown us the monster um, or the first film was all about, you know, what is this thing and how does it operate? And once you've kind of revealed those cards, I think the only thing you can do now is just throw more of them at us um, because mm-hmm. that same level of tension is, is evaporated. Like you can't regenerate the mystery around this thing that we already understand. And so I would. Yeah, I could hear that. I could see that. They did, they didn't that. Do but I did one or the other. Yeah. I'm, I guess I'm just, I was th- looking at it from the point of view of trying to m- match the magic of the first mm-hmm. one. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, you're right. In the second one, you can't really necessarily do the same thing. So. You know, the only time we really see an army of them is at the boat dock, right? Where they just destroy everyone. Yeah. There's like four or five of them or something. But yeah, if one can do so much damage, what could like 50 of yeah. them, right? And if the whole world is like this, there's got to be thousands of them out there. So interesting. 100%. So before I dive into my shenanigans, I am curious, like, what about the, how'd you feel about the opening? Cause it had such a strong, like first 10, 15 minutes, this cold open before they, you know, show the title, which is a great use of a cold open. Uh, I'm just curious, like what are the, what are the elements about that, that you liked and, uh, or, you know, the expectations that it might've set for you for the rest of the film that didn't quite meet. Um, I liked seeing that they came from a meteor or a comet that hits the earth, I guess. Or must have been multiple because all over the world, all over the world, because you see one like flying, like it's going to land, you know, tens of thousands of miles away. But then, you know, a few minutes later, the aliens are there in their town. So obviously something had happened before. Um, So anyway, I liked seeing that. I liked seeing, you know, like some pretty like the confusion of everyone. I liked seeing Lee there again. Um, I liked Lee saving his family. Um, or at least Reagan, you know, mm-hmm. um, I liked seeing Lee like understand immediately we have to be quiet, you know, and shushing the guy, put just putting his hand over the guy's mouth uh, when they're they're hiding in the pub. Uh, I liked the introduction of Killian's character. Uh, the thing, you know, that you alluded to of like, you know, some things that might have fallen flat were like, OK, well, I see him one time or like, a, you know, like a, for like a couple of minutes um, but I don't get a whole lot of information about who he is. I just see, okay, that's Gillian Murphy. We're definitely going to see him again. Yeah. But I had seen the trailer, so I knew he was a major part of it. But but we don't get a whole lot from his character uh, yet, which is okay, I guess, because we're still, you know, like so happy that that Lee is back and we see him and and wanting to live in this moment for a long time because we know that we're about to cut to after he's dead. So yeah, I mean, I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fantastic. The whole scene in the car that you played, where she backs up, and then we see the arm come out of the <laughs> of the <laughs> the bus in front of her. So good, really, really, really good. Yeah, it, and then and then the title sequence that this just it was fantastic. I I loved it. I would like I would have liked to have had more of it. You know, to like maybe get to their house somehow. Like, how do they get out of that city, out of the city square? to their home you know what are the first because that the the first one opens it's already been this way for however long Mm -hmm. maybe six months or three months or something so what were those first three months like or those first few months like yeah 
yeah, that opening sequence was just so fantastic. And I was on the edge for sure. I love that. Like you just said, like they reestablished the dad and it refreshes the tragedy of losing him, especially as we are kind of seeing him save people. Like you said, he puts his mouth over their or his hand over their mouth in order to keep them quiet. He's catching on very quickly about how these things are operating. And, and I'm, I'm totally fine with that. Like it played very well, um, unexpectedly mm-hmm. well for how well kind of everyone caught on. And I think that's, I think there's some, you know, semblance of truth to that. You know, I think it's probably something that's in our reptile bar- brain, you know, that's deep in our evolutionary history of our ability to, to find patterns, pattern recognition. And usually that's more of a visual thing, but, escaping a predator i think is kind of embedded and so i'm totally fine with how quickly everyone caught on and started playing and especially reaffirming the kind of person he is because part of me kind of expected him and honestly this is exactly what i expected for him to just look over at this person praying and start scooting the other direction because he's like i know what happens next uh and instead you know he quiets them he's trying to save as many people as he can and that's just a beautiful way to reintroduce this this character and to kind of open up that wound all over again because of you know just the the, the kind of person he is and it's a great way to reestablish the rules and the universe and gets us emotionally engaged with all of it and, along with the family themselves and and the loss of that little boy like we don't spend a ton of time on the little boy smartly because he's not around anymore but it reminds us that oh yeah this family is still in the aftermath of a tragedy yeah and so that opening sequence was great but i think i have a lot of the same response like uh underwhelmed um i i was hoping for more especially on the emotional side yeah i don't know maybe i'll just scrub through my notes because i literally sat in the parking lot for half an hour just hashing out all the things that I was feeling and thinking throughout the film. And I think the biggest one, and I'm going to use a phrase that I don't think I've ever used on the show before, uh, because I don't really believe in this terminology, which if you're a writer or a filmmaker out there um, or, you know, a literature professor, you know, don't roll your eyes at me or do. And, you know, but I get it. I'm the dumb one in this conversation. I totally get it. But I don't believe in the three act structure as a method of creating your stories, not because I don't think it's useful. I think it's useful in kind of a hindsight way. Like you wrote your story and here's a way to analyze it and figure out what's working or what's not. Um, but I'm just not really big on discussing or even thinking about stories in terms of a three act structure. That said, <laughs> I think this movie had a really big problem with the second act. <laughs> like there's a massive lull in the second act that just kind of puts you to sleep and and it's because of a really bad thing that i think is happening in this film which is the characters are kind of dumb the it's a complete reversal of what we experienced in the first uh, film because in this film everyone's kind of proactive right everyone has a, a thing that they're trying to do well two people have a thing that they're trying to do the daughter and the mother both have something that they're trying to do but it's kind of murky and it's not intensely logical like you were pointing out the whole thing with the island is is very murky and, and ambiguous. Like why I don't I never really got a strong sense of why she's so intent on finding the island. Uh like to what end? And you know, we kind of discover, oh, she's really after the uh the the satellite or the the signal, the antenna. We can pump out this this uh feedback signal to to cripple the monsters. Cool. But the problem is that's not a good enough revelation to to have a, a good payoff. I think instead you want to front load that expectation a lot heavier than they did. Maybe it was there and I just, it just didn't grab hold of me very well. But I think if you front load it a lot harder, now we have an expectation and now we have a rooting interest for, yes, we need to get to this island and everyone needs to get on board with this plan. Instead, it's a little too murky. It's a little too ambiguous. Um, whereas clarity here provides a stronger sense of purpose and goal for us to root for. And it creates an external stake. Like there's something that we, we really have a, a vested interest in happening because we hate the monsters. Like there's no redeeming quality to these things. They're just killing machines. And, and that's good. That's a great monster. I'm, I'm all for that. And then going back to murky, proactive, you know, goals, agendas, why does the mom need to leave? Like, I get that she's getting medicine, but it's kind of boring. It's fine, but it's a very dull like goal because she's fighting for her family in a very uninteresting way, right? The son is hurt. 
but he's not exactly in critical condition, critical condition on the edge of death. Like he doesn't need a brain operation. Um, instead, yeah. it, it's a ticking time bomb that may as well be counting down starting from like eight months, like one second by one second, eight months is coming. Like, uh, okay, I know it's eventually going to detonate, but possibility of tetanus or, or pain is not a very compelling, you know, stake emotional uh, investment for the audience to have. It's just kind of like, oh, this is a chore that needs to get done. And that's fine if it happens either one a little bit faster or the journey is a little bit more arduous and neither of those things are true. And so it's just, it's not a very compelling uh, goal or mission. And then two or two, three, the sun, and this is what really got me. Um, the sun leaving the baby to kind of go peep around stupid like yeah. that's that's a yeah dumb, it's like what is happening why are you doing this and here's the thing i I think the the counter argument is that's what kids do yeah that's what kids do but it doesn't help us sympathize with him instead of buying in we're kind of judging him as there's no good reason for his decision and it doesn't reflect what the audience would do in his place and so i think if you're going to have kids do something dumb that kids do you need to have a much more immediate consequence instead of something that plays out of the course of 30, 40 minutes. And he's not dumb. And he's not dumb. He's a right. smart kid. He's a smart, he's a smart kid who is looking out for his family as much as, as much as a kid his age can do. And so it, it's very, just seems out of character for yeah, him to do that. Yeah, totally. Okay. Whereas if it was someone that we didn't like watching him do something stupid, that makes more sense. You want characters that you don't like doing something stupid in order to frustrate you and also to give the your protagonist something to do. Now we got to save this this jerk out of a moral principle instead of, you know, this is someone that I love and of course I'm going to save them regardless. Whereas if you put someone that we hate in a bad position out of their own stupidity, now they're now you're getting a a, a moral quandary. Do we save this person that we don't like out of their own stupidity? Yes, because that's the right thing to do, right? There's there's all these impulses that you're feeding into the audience now instead of someone that we like and that we think better of doing something stupid. That's that's not, you know, a productive use of, of screen time, I think. Killian, I don't even remember his name, uh, Emmett, uh, like his... His name in the film is very uh, glossed over. I'm sure it was in there, um, but it's so all these characters shouldn't even have names as far as I'm concerned. It should just be mom, dad, son, daughter. Man on Island is the most suitable name in here from uh, Jaman Hunsu. But Emmett feels very flat and unexplored. Exactly what you were saying. Like, we just don't know enough about him and his and his real motivations. Like, we kind of understand that he's detached, right? He's detached from society. Uh, he lost his his family and it makes sense. That's why. But I don't think there's enough emotional buttons there to really buy into him and and his own vested goals because he's still a good guy, which is great. Um, and he's still going after the daughter and uh, trying to help there and put the family back together uh, because he's a good person. But I don't know. Uh, it just it, it feels very uncompelling emotionally um, because of those the very reasons that you were saying, Todd, like he's. He's just a little flat and unexplored. Um, why does he want him to move on? Because he just wants to be bitter by himself. Okay, I guess. Uh, and he didn't help them out in the first film because why? Uh, okay. Um, and so it just feels very tangential and we're just trying to button up expositional holes on why we know this guy and why he's still alive despite us never meeting him in the first film. It, it feels a little clunky uh, in that way as a way to tie, tie up the universe. You know what? Yeah. Cause I, then just chime in real fast. I think part of the problem that I had with his character was that I didn't not like him ever. Yeah. It wasn't like, Oh, I didn't come save you because I'm an asshole. That's how I am. That's how you've known me to be ever since before this. I would, you should, you knew I wasn't going to come get you. Right. Cause I'm an asshole. And then you're just, I've lost everyone. You're kind of like, my new found thing that I can save now, maybe I'll, you, you win me over because you're awesome people. And then, and then I help her, the, the, the girl, you know, because I, yeah, I don't have a home to go back to. And, and they just, he becomes better. Yeah. He becomes more like the dad throughout the film. Like that didn't happen. He was always just 
this this guy, this this random guy. So we didn't just helping out, just have, pitching in. I would have liked to have hated him. Yeah. I would have liked to have yeah, exactly. I would have liked to have hated him at first so that he was redeemed. Mm. This was like a redeeming thing for him. Yeah. And then he dies at the end, right? Like or sacrifices like, himself. I'm okay with not or not repeating that beat, but make it worthy. Sure. Make it worthy of sure. that moment. Right. I was just thinking extremes here. Yeah. Complete asshole to sacrificing himself for this little girl, right? Um yeah. anyway. But yeah, but we didn't really that have that. Great. So, no, yeah, I think mm -hmm. you're right. That would have been a really great like journey because in the first film, you know, we see the dad sacrifice himself out of love and as a mm -hmm. method of proving his love. And that was great. That was an emotionally compelling and I'm getting oh, I, I still haven't even gotten to that stuff. Um yeah. And so instead of clear motivations with any of the characters, we're kind of left just watching these characters move through the world because, and, and that's a problem just because you want stronger characters with bigger opinions and bigger uh, conflicts. And none of that is really just in here because she gets him to buy in a little too easily and they get to the Island. They buy in a little too easily. Like it's all just very milk toast. It's very, you know, uh, lacking in and in strong internal conflict between the characters themselves, not even, you know, getting into the world conflict. Um, just the interpersonal drama is very light, um, if there at all. And so, and so it's not a bad idea if what we discover is compelling, right? If you want to have a slow, compelling thing, that's fine. Like if we, if we get to the Island to discover that, you know, they've figured out a way to, I don't know, or that the island is being controlled by a master monster that's controlling all these other, you know, things. That's a good thing to reveal at the last minute. But there was just nothing really compelling about it, right? The emotional stakes are absent and we're just left with people trying to survive. And then at the end, when, when we ended part one, the mom, we left off with her being like a badass, ready to take over the world. And in this film, she suddenly became somewhat complacent and fearful. And she could have been driving the story all along, alongside her daughter. That's a really strong one-two punch because her daughter had a pretty strong personality in the first film. And she still had a strong, you know, perspective in this one. She just didn't have a lot to push against. You know, there wasn't enough going up against her other than the monsters themselves. And instead of, you know, putting the mom and daughter together to explore their emotional history... And maybe there's now a fallout between the mom and daughter about what happened to the father. Like there's a, a really good stakes within the family to explore there that they just left completely on the table because instead of that, they tried to put the daughter with another dad figure and the dynamics weren't driven by any real powerful commentary between the two. Instead, it was just a matter of, uh, like you said, she becomes, you know, the replacement in her family of the dad. And that's just not a very compelling argument either that they made and maybe at all. Um, maybe there's a better version of it, you know, that they just didn't tap into. But uh, this was certainly was not it. And I, I don't know. I, I think that kind of brings me to the core problem that I think is, is here, which is a lot of the beats are very similar to the first film, only less exciting. Like we don't really explore the world beyond what we've already seen, except with less emotional investment. Um, we already know the monster's weakness and strength and what the first film did really, really well. Excellent. Perfect. Uh, this one did not. And so the first film played in contrast perfectly, like using contrast. The use of contrast was perfectly executed, right? The monster's strength became its weakness. Its sensitive hearing became its, uh, its, its pitfall. The daughter thinking that her dad's push for her hearing aid uh, was his judgment against her and, and how mm -hmm. their, their brother, you know, uh, passed in the opening of the first film. And now, you know, became in the first film became the salvation of the family. It became a demonstration of his love. Like that's a very powerful turn in the in the, in the climax of the film. That's a great use of this this object, this thing as a source of conflict and a source of uh, resolution. Like what a beautiful way to contrast, you know, all these elements in your story. And, and part one was a metaphor. God, the entire world was built around a family who could not communicate with each other, which was absolutely paralleled with the monster's ability to listen and wait for them to do so and kill them for the effort. 
like this family who has this emotional baggage that they can't uh, deal with within each other is reflected and echoed in the world itself, waiting for them to try and do it so that they can kill them. Like, that's just beautiful. That's a beautiful metaphor. Um, and then, of course, the resolution of the film perfectly overlapped the emotional journey of the daughter, her journey of understanding my dad, whatever. He doesn't like hate me and blame me. Instead, he's trying to help me. And that thing became the solution for our, for not just the, the external problem, but also the internal resolution of your main character. God, that's perfect symmetry and, and storytelling. And so part two, let's look at it with all that in mind. Let's look at part two. There was no emotional journey. Like there was the promise of one. And I think they could have tackled any number of avenues that we've already kind of hit on. But I thought the one that they were going for, which they just set up on a T, uh, was when Emmett set the table with anyone who survived is not someone worth saving. Wow. That's a thesis right there. We have a thesis. And what they could have done, what I expected them to do, uh, was to show us why he's right. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, prove why he's wrong. That's ex everything you want. Instead, we do eventually run into a group of evil people. And we don't really, I mean, they're just kind of a normal evil. Like there's nothing really great about you know their duplicity. And instead, Emmett uses the monsters to kill them, which was great. That's a fun new wrinkle in the in this universe. One that I was completely anticipating, you know, for sure. But I wanted to see that. My problem with it, on, on the other hand, is that you have these bad guys who set a trap and didn't know how to handle the, the result of their trap. Why should they be floored or, you know, surprised by monsters coming out of the woodwork when noise is made through these bells? That should have been a part of their, like, it, when this happens, if this person, you know, triggers this thing that we set up, we know how to deal with it. And instead, it became their undoing. Um, and that felt very uh, underthought. Mm -hmm. uh, it still worked because it's this carnage and we hate these people because they're trying to kill these our, our friends. But I think there was more to, to squeeze out of that dynamic. Um, and maybe it was a little underthought in the execution of it. And then we find an island filled with good people and find out, oh no, they're good people. Like that's all there was to discover in this thing. Yeah. And then we watch them die, which is is boring. You know, there's no other real way to say it. Very boring. Um, and we intercut that whole sequence of them being slaughtered uh, with the sequence of the mom trying to save the son from his own stupidity, which is frustrating since we're emotionally, I was emotionally unengaged uh, because I'm still kind of judging his dumb decision. And I'm like, we shouldn't even be here in the first place. And then, why is this happening? Like, is this, I think I was expecting so much more from the story that that whole setup was underwhelming. Um, and, and I just found it uncompelling. Um, and I was happy, you know, that they won. Um, but the final resolving moments of that whole sequence just felt like unearned pauses where characters are dramatically pausing and waiting for no real reason other than to build a climax because they're, executing the exact same thing that we saw in the first film yeah we know what happens whenever you you slam the 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 earpiece the hearing aid into the mic we've already felt and experienced all this and so this whole sequence is just a rehash and therefore unsurprising and unfulfilling uh, but even worse than that and this is so much worse is that there are no emotional stakes what are they fighting for to live cool we've been doing that since the beginning but it's boring because we we expect characters to want to live, but what we want are characters who have a reason to live. And you could assign any number of emotional vestment stakes for that, whether it's redemption, you know, like in the first film, um, you know, there's a certain level of redeeming the sacrifice that her father made, or, you know, you could have had vengeance. Like this is something, there's this new bad guy that's evolved, you know, maybe Jaman Hunsu instead of being this good person, maybe he's a bad mm -hmm. person and now mm -hmm. he's cost us something, whatever. He's killed a member of our family or whatever. He's endangering our family, whatever. Vengeance. Now there's a good reason uh, to manipulate these monsters to killing our adversary. But the, there's an emotional stake there, whatever it is. Love, like in the first film, maybe vindication to prove that I'm right and they're wrong. 
you could have made the vindication anything around the, the thesis that they already had, right? Uh, that people are worth saving. And here's, you know, my vindicating moment to prove why they're worth saving is maybe someone is trying to sacrifice. Maybe Emmett is trying to sacrifice himself, which is proving him against his own thesis. That would have been beautiful. He, you have this character that says people aren't worth saving. It's true. And he himself becomes worth saving. That would have been gorgeous. Um, and a vindicating moment for why uh, he's wrong. Like you could have picked that and probably a thousand other reasons. These were just me spitballing over the course of five minutes. Like imagine what they could have done with all the time, you know, of exploring some of these ideas. And so I think the missed opportunity is to drive home their thesis statement on an emotional level instead of proving Emmett wrong by simply showing up to an island with good people who are never tested with his thesis. Those people are never tested. And the closest that we get is the man on the man that we meet that he wants to go back and and save his family and what sucks is that it immediately gets him killed there we never really have a moment to see how that could or could not pan out um it's just you know an immediate consequence that didn't really have any emotional weight behind it and so i would have been okay with that I idea if you could have found a way to to wind it up a little stronger uh, one way or the other and then at the at the climax, the kids save the adults. But that that feels cool, but it also feels random and not at all pointed. Like there's no real setup to that payoff. It just kind of happens without any meaningful overlap within the story. Like, why is that significant? And I don't on a more, you know, less thematic element here. I didn't really buy her ability to crush this thing's skull. Um, she's not a physically intimidating character. I think it might, it might've been a little wiser instead of having, you know, this teenage girl go against the physical prowess of a interplanetary intergalactic, uh, monster to give her some, you know, a much stronger weapon just for, you know, very, very surface level buy-in from the audience. I think that was a big risk, uh, on their part. And that, had me withdraw from from that element uh, of the story and so this gets into me doing the worst thing anyone should do which is backseat driving more than i've already done believe it or not uh, are you gonna rewrite the movie not quite but okay I'm gonna... I, I saw it coming <laughs> <laughs> and i'm sorry god i hope john krasinski no you're not this is fun it's fun why not um but i think there's more interesting ideas they could have played with and Really, I think I'm not even going to like nail everything down. Uh, I'm not going to do a full rewrite. I'm just going to go with the very simple suggestion of genre bending. Like they didn't really flex the genre the way they should have because we have this silent survival horror in the first one, which is great. That's still one of the best horror films ever made. And this movie does not diminish that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But you can't do a survival horror two times in a row and expect to have the same payoffs. Um, not whenever you're dealing with that good of a movie. Like if this is just a, you know, a blanket genre film, fine. You know, give me Friday the 13th 75 times and I'm going to go in. I know what I'm going to expect and I'm going to walk out and be like, yeah, that was 10 bucks and I enjoyed it. And what was that movie about? Like five seconds, the credits roll. And I'm like, what was that movie about? I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, but this isn't that. This is such a much more engaging thing. And so I think if they had engaged the film on a genre level differently, they could have done more. So the ways yeah, I think you could have done that is we could have moved from the silent survival horror film into an action horror, uh, a la Alien moving into Aliens. Like, okay, let's explore okay, we know what it means to have one or two of these things creeping around. What does it mean to have, like you said, 50? Why not? Like at this point, maybe we can kill two birds with one stone. And instead of let's just kill these one or two again, instead let's put 50 of them against another group of people. And now we're not only going to, uh, use our new technology to punish the the monsters, but we're going to use them, use it to lure them into this big trap that punishes the, uh, the other humans that are bad guys. And in a way, destroy both of them in once, like you had an opportunity there to, to just put a more action heavy element because 
the final scene, the final heartbeat of the part one pointed to action. When you have someone pumping a shotgun and that's what you cut on, you 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 very much are screaming action. Um, mm-hmm. And to not explore that element at all, uh, I think is a, a massive misstep um, in the direction of this film. Or you could have you know, pushed this from a survival horror into interpersonal horror. How has the monsters affected their community on a personal level? They kind of like hinted at it, but we didn't really explore it uh, in any meaningful way other than like, what, four or five minutes max? Uh, like the, the way he's just kind of watching them enter his area hints at, okay, we're going to look at some of the interpersonal drama now, like on a social level, how is this impacting people? But it was very fleeting. Like we set it up and then we just kind of walked away. Like there was, there was no hit. And, and in that way, ironically, or coincidentally, I would point to something like a 28 days later, you know, using zombies as a setup for uh, social aspects of humanity. And I say coincidentally uh, because of, you know, Killian Murphy is in 28 days later, or, you know, we could have went from a survival silent horror to an alien invasion horror. What else may be coming after the first wave? Are these pets? Are they like cleansing the earth of competition? Are they some kind of virus? Are they mutating the land? Um, what are, what's their bigger function? I think there's other space to explore the evolution of what these in, uh, creatures indicate. Like, what are the implications of these creatures in and of themselves? Uh, you could have explored that a little bit more. Um, what are those meteors that they're coming in on? I don't know. There's room. There's space to explore it. I'm not saying that's the best version of this. Uh, you could have went to from survival to cultural horror. Like, what does society look like after living through this? Are there animals left alive? Like these things we saw in the first film, they killed like that raccoon, right? And the dogs and like there's so maybe there's a fun analogy of how you could compare the monsters and how they treat us and make an analogy to how humans treat our own animals. Maybe all the Mm -hmm. animals are gone now and now we can't live off of killing cows anymore, you know, for food. And what happens to society when all animals are gone and there's just a few of us left? I don't know. You know, there is a commentary and this is coming from someone. I eat lots of meat. Like I'm not, you know, uh, someone I'm just saying I would be interested in having that perspective thrown at me. Like this is an interesting conversation and it's space to explore. I don't think you have to be pro or anti anything in order to explore explore the, the the commentary that you can put around it. And so whatever, et cetera. The point is that shifting the genre allows for new rules and devices to come into play because survival horror has its own elements of don't get caught, right? Action horror has its own elements of can we, you know, brute force this thing out. And now because of those very subtle like differences within genre, now you can test and push your characters in new fresh ways that allows you to still explore uh, the characters themselves and evolve the world and and like push new buttons that create a whole new emotional roller coaster throughout the film. Anyway, uh, as far as cinematography, wow. yeah, I love yeah. that. <laughs> Thanks, man. Like, uh, <laughs> there was so much space. Like, they could have also done what you know we were talking about earlier. Like, could have kept it in the same thing and just explored new emotional uh, dynamics within the family. Uh, I think that could have served uh, the perfect venue of. And that, and you know, I didn't really have any notes on this, <laughs> but it is hard to write sequels because the the problem is the things that people loved about the first one you don't want to move too far away from in the sequel. Like you want a audience liked a thing, let's give them more of that thing, which is dangerous because audiences don't actually want that same thing. They they think they do, and this is where the the job of the filmmaker comes in is to tell them, here's elements that you like from the first film and here's ways that you don't think coming in that you wanted here's things you didn't expect to want that in fact you did want it's very much a steve jobs of people don't really know what they want they think they know what they want but they don't know until you give it give it to them and now it's like yes Mm -hmm. this is what i wanted all along it's very much that side of things and and if you 
play that game, you might you might miss. You might say, yeah, let's bend the genre and make this into an action horror. And then people walk out like so disappointed. Uh, I wanted to, to, you know, have those moments of anticipation and, and, and because you missed. And it's not because, you know, you as a filmmaker got it wrong. It's just because you you just didn't execute it right. Or maybe there was elements to your story. I don't know. I'm all for taking chances. And I don't think this film took any. And I think that's my bigger issue is they didn't really risk much. And in doing so, I think they kind of lost. And that's not to say, I don't think this is a bad movie. It's a, it's a fine movie. Like I, I enjoyed it. I wasn't disappointed, you know, with the time spent, I was disappointed that they just really didn't take a, take a crack at it to, to really mm-hmm. push the boundary and, and to refresh the world. I think that's my, I mean, yeah, yeah I, I agree with 99% of that. I think that they did take risk, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of risk. I mean, they're risking, I mean, their lives in general, you know, specifically, but like Reagan, for example, didn't have to go look for, look for that radio station. She didn't have to go by herself either. Killian's character, Emmett, didn't have to go with her. I mean, like they kind of did. I mean, Killian didn't really have a whole lot to risk. I I see what you're saying because he didn't have his family anymore. You know, it would have been interesting if like he still had maybe his son or his wife, but she was dying. And he needed to take continue taking care of her, but he chose to go save Reagan mm-hmm. instead. You know, like then there's a cost, a personal cost to it, going back to what you were saying about it, the internal struggle in that regard. So yeah, there could have been, definitely could have been more weight. I think that they risked what they were allowed to risk with the script, if that makes sense. The yeah. way the script is written is like, okay, well, you know, Reagan's risking her life. Well, yeah. You know, they're all risking their lives all the time. Like you mentioned earlier, it's like, what would they've been doing this whole time? I mean, even to breathe is like risking your life. So Mm. yeah, I, I, uh, I, I agree. I agree with, like I said, 99% of that. I just feel like, like they did risk, but yeah, it felt like they had so, there was so much room in the script to do something interesting and unique that it was almost like a, oh man, really? You could have done so much more with this. I mean, yeah, it's hard though with a second movie like this because also because the really stressful things about the first one, some of the, not all of them, but some of the really stressful things, one in particular, having a baby in silence, like, oh, finding out you're pregnant and then the, 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 like, oh my God, what are we going to do? in in nine months how are we supposed to you know like what and that is like a thing that's coming up and you know it's coming and like you have to prepare for it and it's gonna it could kill you and you can't you're not gonna have that in this one right and so the baby that's why i thought the baby was like more of a of a weight because then what now you're just gassing the baby to to keep him quiet the whole time yeah i think the problem though is all those things worked in the first one not because it was well shot or because it was well acted but because the audience was emotionally rooting for these characters to fix their problems and if they die before they get a chance to do that that's heartbreaking yeah when you want something to emotionally get resolved when you're like apologize or tell her how you feel and then a character is about to get killed before they ever had that moment then you're just really torn up about it like i don't want that stuff to happen and in this film there was no conflict there was no conflict Mm. between the characters that gave you this emotional investment of i need to see these people live so that they can you know fix their their issues uh with each other and so it doesn't matter how how they played out any of the other stuff i just didn't care because there was no conflict i mean in the first one their son dies yeah nobody dies Right. In this movie. Yeah. There was no, no main character yeah. dies in this movie. You know? I mean, Jamon Honsu's character died, but we know him all of five minutes. Like he's not he didn't even he's an have afterthought a name. in this film. <laughs> didn't even have a name. Like kill off the only black guy. <laughs> it's like the thing that you don't do these uh, days. Um which uh, while yeah. you're saying that, shout yeah. out to our man Aaron D. Alexander for uh, stunt doubling for Jamon Hunsu. Like, that's freaking dope, bro. 
<laughs> yeah, we saw your name in the credits and tried to take a picture. We, I couldn't get my phone out fast enough. We're I'm not quick slow. enough on the draw. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, it was awesome. And we saw your moment and we think, yeah. we think we saw your moment. Yeah, it was pretty clear. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know if you were going to be mad at me or what, no. but I, as soon as it happened, I turned I turned to you and I would like hit you on the shoulder like, that's it. Yeah, anyway. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. That was such per yeah no that was that was perfect mm -hmm. um yeah and lightly this is like all of 15 seconds worth of cinematography notes i thought it was fantastic <laughs> they did a great job shooting this thing they shot the hell out of it um yeah like really really as good or better than the first one i would say actually like great reveals great transitions i love the cop being butchered off screen like whenever he's trying mm -hmm. to save whoever and he's calling attention to him. So, oh, he's shooting. He's, he's he's trying to blast him with his shotgun and absolutely failing, of course. But I love that that transition because we're we're I don't even know what to call it. We're dollying back. And as the monster reaches him, we we boom down behind the, the, the cop car, the patrol car to reveal the son who is hiding, you know, on the other side. Uh, and so we see his reaction and that's the kind of stuff you want to do for a PG 13 film, which is shoot it dark so that you can't really see the, the violence like on the, the docks, whenever the, the, the evil people get killed, that all happens in the dark, right? You can hide the violence and still get your PG 13 rating. You don't have to see limbs being severed and blood flying everywhere. You can, you can mask it pretty well. And here we get to hear with the, uh, the, the cop being killed in the opening, and yet another black man getting killed for the white man. What the hell, man? No, I'm just yeah. <laughs> being funny. Um, and but what's nice is we get to hear the kill. We get to see the, the the car being rocked and the reaction to the son listening to you know his friend being killed and trying not to trying to just keep it together because he knows if he 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 says anything, that's his life on the line next. I love the reveal of the sun speeding around the corner to get snared in the bear trap. Like that was a beautiful shot. Uh, and it had absolute maximum impact on both of us. Like I saw you reel just like I did because his foot gets caught in that bear trap. And there's just uh, this very quick, like ramp up to feeling what he's feeling in that moment because you know it happens and you're like what happened to him what oh god oh god and they just shot it to maximum effect i will say i'm glad you mentioned that moment i will say probably the most powerful moment in the film for me because of uh, emily blunt's performance in that moment um i mean obviously noah was amazing in it yes. like the agony you could he see went, it on his face yeah. he was he was hurt but to be a parent watching a child be in such agony and ask the child have to ask the child to to be quiet to beg because it's going to kill all your family like that is i mean obviously it's a very unique <laughs> you know situation i think that most of the time you know like my daughter cut her finger a month ago or something and it was hysterics i mean it was like the end of the world right and, um, uh, you know, but we were in our home and I was able to just hold her mm. and let her be as loud as she needed to be for as long as she needed to be. But in that scenario, like to, to have to have to have that, I mean, obviously you want them, you need them to be quiet because, you know, you don't want to die, but to have to ask your child, I know you're in agony, but stop, you know, that's, that's a really, really hard thing. To do like I can't imagine holding my daughter in my arms saying, please be quiet, please be quiet when she's bleeding all over the place. You know, like that's that's hard. That's rough. That's rough. That whole, you know, scene there was incredible. And then I always forget names. Reagan uh, grabbing the uh, or no, was it um, was it Reagan who first did the, the the speaker and that moment, I guess, when when Marcus is hurt. And that first creature comes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. That whole scenario, that whole sequence, because we hadn't seen them use the speaker yet. True. We didn't, you know, we knew what it was for, but we didn't see it. I was going to ask you how you felt about that, uh, because I don't really I didn't understand, understand. <laughs> how amps work. I was like, does that not need electricity? Um, it needs electricity. Okay, so. But I was thinking maybe she grabbed a battery. Yeah. I don't know. I, I really don't. 
she cut the power cord off the speaker. Right. She grabbed a microphone that she then plugged into the speaker that didn't have any power running to it. And did that I, mic to you look like phantom power mic or uh, not? <laughs> there might oh, well it's one of those it's one of those it's one of those mics where you know you push down a button it's like a talk talk mm. bag mic where you push down a button and so it might be powered and okay. if it is powered maybe it's send maybe it is there's an amplifier within the microphone itself that just sends the power into the speaker mm. i i don't know okay. usually usually the power doesn't come from the microphone usually it comes from the inner workings of the amplifier so which had its power cut so so i don't I, fully know you like for me i was mostly fine with all that just because i don't know how that stuff works uh but i was curious yeah. if that pulled you out at all if you're like uh that's not how that stuff works that was the first moment where i was like i don't understand okay. like that we're in this in the film i was like wait a minute something just happened you know what i'm saying yeah yeah the whole first 15 minutes or so are amazing you're loving it and now we're back in the world this is post lee dying and and post them figuring out the sound is the 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 key and she goes back in the in the room we see the dead monster and then and we're wondering what um uh, evelyn is looking for in the water oh yeah it's the tank okay cool got it uh, okay that makes sense but then she cuts the cord and when she cut the cord, I thought, okay, where, what is she doing with this? She's going to do something else, but she didn't do anything else. She just grabbed the microphone yeah. and I thought, wait, is this movie taking a turn? <laughs> because I don't understand that. That didn't make any sense to me. Anyway, I would love it if someone in the co could leave in the comments why that could work. Mm. You could explain why maybe, you know, that whole scenario that she used works. That would be, that would be uh, wonderful because it didn't make much sense to me. And I think that was the turning point for me in the film. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I think that's about all I got. Uh, all right. <laughs> what are you going to recommend this week? Um, yeah. So this week, I mean, I'm going to stay on the John Krasinski train because I, I think that he is a very gifted, um, actor and he is a very gifted, um, director and writer. Obviously he wrote the first one, and I just, I want him to win, you know, like he's just this guy that you just love. You can't help but love the guy. Um, and I, I did enjoy the movie. Wasn't super crazy about it, but I'm going to stay on the John Krasinski train and go with the pilot for the office, the, the TV series, just, you know, because I love that series so much and I loved his character so much. And it was his first real breakout. Um, and to see where what he's evolved into is pretty badass, you know, to come from nothing to watch him basically grow up on screen, um, at least professionally, has been really awesome. And to see someone also go from comedy to drama in, you know, his Jack Ryan stuff mm -hmm. to to horror uh, is pretty awesome to be able to see that and to be successful in all in all the different genres that he's done has been, is pretty awesome. Not many actors can pull that off. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to watch Tom Cruise in a comedy anytime soon, but I'll watch all the mission impossibles you can throw at me. I'll watch all the top guns you can throw at me, you know? Uh, but for, for I'll, him to be able to do all that. I'll, awesome. I'll rebut. Have you seen Tropic Thunder? Yes. Tom Cruise is absolutely hilarious in Tropic Thunder. Yeah. Now he doesn't normally do a lot of comedies to your point. Uh, but I would watch like that kind of Tom Cruise in a comedy any day of the week. It couldn't be Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise. It would have to be like, okay. caricature Tom Cruise. <laughs> okay. He, All right. he is All right. pee your pants funny in that, I think. <laughs> I, I need to go watch it again. It's been a minute, a whole minute. Same. Yeah, I haven't no. watched it in a while either. Um, I mean, what do you mean, you people? <laughs> what do you mean, you people? <laughs> Robert. Uh, and just for clarity, and I know what you meant, uh, but yeah, John Krasinski co-wrote uh, uh, the first one alongside the other guys. But his, I think he made a massive, massive impact on the writing uh, of that first one. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he, mm -hmm. whatever. So I'm going to recommend another horror film that I don't think I've recommended yet. Uh, and it's called The Signal. Now there's two The Signals out there. There's one that was made by William Eubank. That's not the one I'm talking about, the one with Lawrence Fishburne. It's not the one I'm talking about. I'm talking about another one. It's older than that. I want to say it's from around like 
2008, 2010, somewhere in there. And it's called The Signal. It's a horror film. And it's about a signal that gets broadcast across the world that turns people into killing machines. And um, if you hear the signal at all, you are done. You're going to start killing everyone around you. Uh, and it's absolutely compelling and horrific. And uh, yeah, I think it's good. If you want something horror uh, like, then go check out the signal. And yeah, so don't turn away too soon. <laughs> We're, uh, stay tuned next week. We're going to uh, do finally uh, Alex requested in her uh, review that we do Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. That's a doozy. So I'm uh, oh, curious to see it. I haven't seen it since it hit the theaters. And so this will be the first time in like a decade that I've sat down to watch it. So we're going to tackle the tree of life next week. And if you're enjoying this episode and uh, our show in general, if you're if you're liking what we're doing here, we'd really appreciate it if you went and uh, subscribed and dropped us a review on iTunes. You know, a little five star note saying, hey, this is what we like. And this is the kind of films we I would like you to do. And so you can do that at the uh, on our on our iTunes or wherever. And if you want to leave a note on this episode to tell us why this was much better than the first one or other things they may have done that could have made this uh, even better than it was, uh, then you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash a quiet place part II because it's part two, but it's, it's II. <laughs> I get it. Nice. Nicely done. Thanks. Our quote of the day is from Helen Keller. The best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she obviously endured a lot in her life um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, being blind and deaf and still making a a massive impact on the world. Um, But coming from her, you know, I think that just kind of uh, encapsulates everything I, I feel about this movie because you know, they focus so much on what we were seeing and hearing and instead of, you know, what we were feeling emotionally. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's a little on the nose, but yeah, that's how I feel. No, that's great. I love it. We'll just leave it at that. I think it's awesome. Nice. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, we finally got here. We finally yes. did it. It's been months. Uh, so excited. Uh, but as Wes said, next week we're doing Tree of Life. So please stay tuned for that. Uh, go watch that and be ready. And please review us. And, and five-star reviews are awesome. But any, you know, whatever you think. And share us with your friends and all that good stuff. Every bit helps. We really appreciate that. Uh, until next time, I am Todd. I am Wes. Go watch some movies.